This is Undisciplined, I'm Matthew LaPlante. More than 5 million children under the age of 18 know what it's like to have a parent in jail or prison. Now, to put this into perspective, you could picture an average-sized elementary school kindergarten. One or two of the children in that class either already know or are going to come to know what it's like to have a parent behind bars. There's not much we can do to make the experience of having an incarcerated parent a completely trauma-free experience, but my guest today wanted to do something. And so they came together across three different academic disciplines to try to make part of this experience a little bit easier. And they did a pretty simple and really quite beautiful thing. They built a garden where prisoners could meet with their families. And then they studied the effects. They wrote about their study in the Journal of Offender Rehabilitation, and they're joining us today to talk about what they discovered. Joining us on the line today from the School of Social Work and Criminal Justice at the University of Washington, Tacoma, is Barb Taves. She's also on the faculty of the Center for Human Rights at the University of Washington, and she's the author of The Little Book of Restorative Justice for People in Prison. Barb Taves, thanks for being here. Thank you. Also joining us from all the way over on the other side of the nation, from the Post-Professional Occupational Therapy Program at Boston University, is Amy Wagenfeld. Her work focuses on collaborative design and outdoor environments, and she's the co-author of the book Therapeutic Gardens, Design for Healing Spaces. Amy Wagenfeld, welcome. Thank you very much. And finally, from the middle of the country at the College of Design at the University of Iowa is Julie Stevens. Over the past decade, she and her students have been working with the women who are incarcerated at the Iowa Correctional Institution for Women to transform a previously barren 30 acres of open space into a living landscape of trees and vegetables, flowers, butterflies, and even some bunny rabbits. Julie Stevens, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Matthew. Julie, let's start with you. You grew up on a farm in Iowa, and you went to school in Oregon for a bit before returning to your home state. I'm wondering when in your life you became interested in what life was like for women in prison. The moment that Susan Erickson, who runs a place program for Iowa State University and Iowa State Extension, knocked on my door in my first semester at Iowa State, prisons in general weren't really in my line of work or my scope, as you may guess. But what always was interesting to me and always has been of deep interest is just the well-being of people and primarily women and children. So you go into this prison and you start looking around for ways to integrate design into the betterment of these people's lives, or was there already sort of a framework that you were interested in looking at? Part of the reason that we were asked to participate in this project was because the state of Iowa had granted the Iowa Correctional Institution for Women a large sum of money to expand the facility, which at that time, they had been inhabiting a former girls' reform school that was never intended to be a prison. 
And when they moved into it in the 80s, there were only about 50 women who were incarcerated. And so as the population grew and the needs changed and there was a, more of an understanding about how women do their time and what they need while they're serving time, so too the environment needed to change. And so we were really like, you know, oftentimes landscape architects complain that we're always brought in after, you know, much of the design has already been considered, but we were brought in a little bit late in the design game, but I think we're really still able to affect a lot of change. What was the first project you and your team completed at the prison? What's, what's the first thing you did? Well, we spent a couple of semesters really doing a lot of master planning and trying to really push the boundaries, you know, working with the staff and the incarcerated women to understand what they needed, understand the site. It's a rather large site. Inside the fence is, I think, about 30 acres. And we did a fair bit of master planning first. The first project that we built, we called the multi-purpose outdoor classroom space. And it's a one acre space that now those who are incarcerated, they just call it the yard, but it sits right in the heart of campus. And it's really the space where most people spend their time when they're outdoors. Really early on, you had the idea, the, the goal really to create a mother-child garden, a place for the women who were in this prison and their children to visit. But it was a while before you could make that happen. What were the obstacles? Oh, so many obstacles, we don't have time to get into them. But <laughs> I will say, when we laid out these different spaces in the master plan, you know, I worked really hard with the students and the ICIW staff and the women who live there to understand what these various populations are inside of the prison. Sometimes people refer to prisons as small towns, and they are in a lot of ways. There's a lot of things that happen there. All the daily services that you and I are used to in our towns and communities are things that happen inside the walls of the prison. So we mapped it out that way. And then when we put our heads together to think about what, you know, spaces needed to be built and in kind of in what order, I laid it out on the table. I really like to do this visiting garden. I've got all this pushback. You know, that's where the public interfaces with the prison population. And that's scary to security staff to think mm -hmm. about all the possibilities and, and risks we may be taking on. You eventually got to do it. and. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about what the garden looks like. I'm so glad that we actually ended up putting it off and have built several other spaces prior to this one because we learned a lot. We built up a lot of trust and momentum, and we were able to push the boundaries of this project even further. So one of the main features in it is this circular path. And that path is critical. And I remember the day one of the incarcerated women who is on our design team, and I, and I truly mean they are part of the team. Uh, we, we handed the pencil over and said, you know, show us what you want. And one of the women drew this path and said, do you know there are women in here who never have an opportunity to teach their child how to ride a bike or push them in a stroller? And that was a total game changer. We expanded the garden I think four times larger than the Department of Corrections had originally approved. But we had to because now we had this purpose that was so critical, you know, enhancing the bonds and relationships between mothers and their children. Amy, this garden that Julie and her students and the women from the prison were building together falls into an area of research and practice called therapeutic design, which is 
building spaces that support physical and emotional rehabilitation. And I think that most people can say gardens are great healing spaces, but I doubt that many people have spent as much time as you have thinking about why gardens are great healing spaces. I think that one of the things that works about gardens is the whole connection that people make with nature is truly impactful. And some would say, according to the principle and the theory of biophilia, that we're hardwired to connect with nature. And, you know, no matter one's circumstance or situation, we all have a right to have the opportunity to connect with nature. And doing so in a therapeutic environment is one that really elevates one's sense of humanity. You've helped bring to life therapeutic gardens in memory care centers, assisted learning homes, military hospitals, veteran centers for children in foster care. And I love this one, a sensory garden for individuals with autism. And with that, what that project told me is that you design different sorts of healing spaces for different groups of people. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I'm honored to have the opportunity to be part of design teams to create these spaces. And when we're creating these spaces, and I have had the opportunity to do them in varied situations, it's very important for me as the therapeutic design consultant to work with the team to help them understand who it is that we're designing for and to understand that no garden should be created in a cookie cutter manner, that taking into account the client's needs or the intended user's needs is paramount to creating a space that will enable them to use it in a way that's most meaningful and impactful for them. What are the elements that you have learned are important in a healing garden for a jail or or a prison setting? I think that what's very, very important, of course, is first and foremost, safety. And it's safety for those who are incarcerated, as well as the staff who work there. So maintaining an environment that one can feel safe and protected in is critically important. It's also important to have outdoor spaces that are interesting, but not overly stimulating, and opportunities to just really genuinely connect with nature in ways that are are meaningful to each person. And then Barb Taves, I think that just about anybody who has a heart can look at prison gardens and gentler visiting spaces and say, well, yeah, of course, that's nicer. But this also falls into a larger framework of rehabilitation and justice. And so If we just looked at these sorts of projects as investments, what is happening in these spaces toward the goal that should be the mission of any prison, which is rehabilitation? I was a longtime restorative justice practitioner before I started doing the research that I do. And in doing some work in prisons, realized that the values and the goals that I was trying to achieve when I did restorative justice education or helped to design and facilitate a prison-based restorative justice program, realized that those values were not communicated in the architecture and in the environment in which I delivered programs. And it really made me wonder about how do we design the spaces and design justice spaces that are actually going to help 
facilitate the goals. So how do we see the environment as an intervention in and of itself? And what is it about the environment that is an intervention? Well, we can create environments that put people on the defensive, that have them feel hopeless, that leads to a lack of motivation, or we can create environments that actually inspire people to do reflection, that restores energy in a way that they can do individual or relational work that they need to do. And if we think about the typical prison environment with its hard surfaces, all the squares and lines that are there, it actually serves to put people on the defensive. It serves to reduce motivation. And so how do we open it up? How do we create an environment where people kind of take a deep breath and say, yeah, I can see my way forward. And nature, literature shows that nature is restorative. It's motivating. It contributes to mental, physical, and emotional health. And those are all things that can help someone who's committed a crime to take the steps that they need to take to address issues in their life that contributed to the crime. A lot of your work focuses on restorative justice, which is a process of reconciliation between people who've made mistakes and the people they've hurt with those mistakes. I think a lot of people probably tend to think about people who've been convicted of crimes and the victims of those crimes in this sort of relationship. But even if the direct victim of a crime isn't a person's family, family members and, and especially children are victimized too. Absolutely. With restorative justice, the victim who directly experienced the crime is at the center of the process, understanding their needs, the harms that they've experienced and how those can be taken care of. And another stakeholder legitimately is the family of the person who committed the crime and especially their children. And so if we're going to be comprehensive in thinking through what a justice response should be, we have to think about those family members. And you know, the findings that we got from the research study just shows that this garden can be so helpful for the maintenance of those family relationships. And those Family relationships are actually really important for the success of someone when they come home. When people who are incarcerated build better relationships with their own families, what does it allow them to do in terms of restorative justice with other victims and, and with the community at large? I think it does several things. They have the support network. Ideally, they're going to have a support network coming out of those restored and hopefully healthy family relationships. And that can make it you know, possible for, for people to do a lot of things when they have the support. I think those family relationships, they can also start seeing how they hurt their families in the context of committing the crimes, which then can actually kind of open the window for being able to think then about what the impact has been on other victims. So kind of building that experience of empathy. You three work in similar areas, but in different disciplines and, and in three very different parts of the country. How did you all find one another? For me as a restorative justice and criminal justice person, it took me a while to find my home when it comes to conferences. And I found out about the Environmental Design Research Association and went to my very first conference there. And I was like, oh my gosh, these are my people. 
everyone kept saying, oh, you have to go hear Julie Stevens talk on Saturday at lunch or like it was just right around lunch. And I was leaving right after lunch. I was like, okay, I got to go hear Julie Stevens talk. And so I went to that talk. I was like, oh my gosh, how can I get involved with what you're doing? Have you done any research? And for me, that's where it started. And I'll jump in now. I too had been searching for a conference in which I felt that I could really connect. I was uh, told about the Environments for Design Research Association conference and I went. And ironically, my book co-author, Daniel, said, oh, you really have to go to this session by Julie Stevens about her work in the correctional system. And like Barb, oh my gosh, I, I listened to Julie talk and I thought, this is absolutely amazing what she has done. And I also approached her after the talk and said, what kind of research are you doing, if nothing, or have you thought about it? And could I be part of the process? So it was a, a fortuitous and most wonderful experience for me. Julie, everybody was sending people your way. Yeah, that's really, really lovely. We refer to this as the fateful EDRA conference where we all met. And I have to say, I was absolutely thrilled that here were these two incredible people who wanted to do research with me on this very strange project in the middle of the country. They were both coming from these beautiful landscapes on the coast. And here I was in the middle of America. So yes, it's been a really incredible collaboration. And we three have become very good friends over the years as well, which just makes our work all that more meaningful and fun. One of the really lovely findings of your study was that this garden wasn't just a place that made people feel more comfortable in visits, but that visits were more conducive to children getting to act like children. It wasn't just talk. Mothers and their children could play together. Talk about that. Play is actually the occupation or the job of childhood. All children deserve to play. And there's nothing more wonderful when you see parents interacting with their children in play situations and in, in very positive play situations. The visiting garden provides that opportunity. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think, oh my gosh, I'm just spending Saturday afternoon in the park. And here I am, I'm watching all these mothers play with their children and do so in ways that are just so conducive to strengthening the attachment relationships that have either been broken or even in some cases shattered due to the incarceration situation. So the garden provides the most elemental and important opportunities for children to connect with their parents or their mothers. And it is through a situation involving play. When children were able to visit in these sorts of settings, the number of visits increased and the lengths of the visits increased. The change in setting facilitated more time between children and parents. In terms of the raw numbers, we didn't, you know, keep track of before the garden, people had visits that were this long. After the garden, they had visits that were this long. But we did check in and see about whether people felt the garden improved their visit or not. And definitely the vast majority, over 90%, said, yeah, being in this garden improved the visit that I had with my family when they were here. Qualitatively, 
in the interviews that we conducted, people were just very clear that the children were excited to be coming. They could run around and let off all that energy, which just meant that they stayed longer because the children's caregivers weren't just losing their minds trying to keep the kids under control while they were in the visit. There actually were things for the kids to do and the parents can visit while sitting on the path or the stone wall in the garden while the children played on the grassy part of the garden. And it just, there was more excitement to come. There was no like, oh, I don't want to come because there's nothing to do. It was, I want to come because I want to have that fun in the park again. So at this point, it's anecdotal and it's qualitative, but certainly future research could look more quantitatively at what the garden is doing for the visits in terms of length. The part of this study that really took my breath away was the finding that the garden allowed for more quiet time between these mothers and their children. And I don't know why it had never dawned on me until that moment that some of the times I value most with my own daughter are the times in which we're present with one another, but not necessarily talking to one another. But but this really struck a chord with me. And I'm wondering how you identified that takeaway from from these gardens. Can you imagine being a small child and coming into a prison visiting space? And I'll say that the new visiting space at ICIW, it you know has bright lighting and, and nice colors, but it's still a prison visiting room with pretty strict rules about the way people can engage. So as you can imagine, spending the four previous summers working inside the prison next to all of these amazing women who were incarcerated for various reasons. I heard a lot of stories and one sticks with me. A woman said, I am such a fun mom. And I thought, how great of you to recognize that. And she said, but my children, they don't know where I'm at and they don't visit because Mm -hmm. this is scary for them. When um, this project first landed in my lap, I had just immediately started reading everything I could get my hands on. And And one thing that I had read said that regardless of the situation that a child is in after a a parent is arrested and incarcerated, they still want mom. They can be in a very supportive home with dad, grandma, aunt, or other caregiver, but they still need that connection with mom. But then they come into a prison visiting room and there are people all over. There are security officers and cameras, and they're asked to sit still. Many of them may have been in the car for hours. So as a parent, I know if I have my child in a car for three hours, and then I bring them into a space and ask them to sit still and be quiet and respectful of other people, that's just, it's not fair. So we loved this idea that kids could, and we heard this a lot from people who responded to our surveys and interviews, kids could go out and run off steam. They could be kids. And then they want to sit down and relate to mom. This study looked at one prison, a women's prison in Iowa. Given the results, I imagine you'd like to do something similar in other places. Oh, absolutely. I think every prison across the country, men's and women's, need spaces for relationships. Are you guys going to work together on this in the future? 
we're always thinking of ways to work together, <laughs> whether it's more work in Iowa or how do we think about other kinds of spaces where we can be bringing each of our areas of focus to it. And I think also asking some of the challenging questions too about if these more natural landscapes within secure facilities can have such a powerful impact. What can we learn about using natural landscapes that are not in secure facilities to also achieve justice needs as well? So there's lots of different directions that we can go in this context of the environment and justice settings. And so, Amy, maybe you can wrap this up for us. What's next for your team? Well, as Barb was saying, we're always very interested in other opportunities to pursue our work, you know, particularly in locked facilities. And one thing that we're working on right now are some residential facilities for children who have experienced significant trauma. And so I think that in some ways our work is expanding into looking at the impact of nature on people who have experienced trauma. That's Barb Taves, Amy Wagenfeld, and Julie Stevens. Their recent paper detailing the results of a study focused on the impact of a visitation garden at a women's prison was recently published in the Journal of Offender Rehabilitation. Barb Taves, I'm glad we could chat. Thank you very much. Amy Wagenfeld, thank you. Thank you very much, Matthew. And Julie Stevens, it's been great having you on the program. Thank you so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening, and go have big ideas.